And then uh, I've just been thinking about something just even just over the last week, and uh, I just think God's challenging me on something, and that feels a bit hard, <laughs> and basically just threatens to make me a little bit less comfortable than I've been feeling recently. And it's all very nice, the whole like feeling God's love side, but actually when he wants to change something, then it can feel a little bit less shiny. Um, but... And I was thinking about it, and I could feel the battle inside myself where I'm struggling with that, thinking, like, well, why doesn't God just make everything easy? Why would it be hard? Like, why wouldn't he just make it easy? And I think there's a lot of people, um, Christian speakers, who seem to say, like, oh, no, everything's great when you're Christian. Like, there's nothing hard about it. Um, and then, uh, even just this morning, I was talking to David, and I was trying to get him to have a snack before we come here, because otherwise, he just wants to eat biscuits the whole time. And I was trying to be like, right, you need to eat snack. Oh, no, I only want biscuits. Come on, David, have a snack. Look, there's a plum. No, I only want biscuits. And I just thought, and I just remembered that there are kids in the world who don't have any food. And I was like, my problem is trying to convince my son to eat some lovely plum. And instead he wants biscuits. And some kids don't have any food. Like the stuff in Yemen is just horrendous. And, and I was just thinking, actually, if we as Christians had beautiful, cushy lives, we would not understand the lives of those around us. Imagine how irrelevant we would be to the people who are going through such awful stuff. And I was thinking about how that isn't how Jesus did it, was it? Like, he came, he had the cushy living in heaven thing going on, and he came down. And as I had a shower this morning, I had this weird thought I've never really, I think about Jesus a lot, but I've never really thought about his body before. And I was having a shower, and I was like, oh, yeah, Jesus had a body. Like, he, when he got baptized, he was wet. <laughs> you know, just like you never think about it before. He, he, he would have had to dry himself. He would have stubbed his toe. He would get hungry. He would get grumpy because he wasn't, didn't have enough sleep. Like, he, he would feel all those things that we felt. And that's why he makes so much sense to us and why he's relevant, because he's gone through pain and loneliness and sadness and grief he's gone through all those things and that's how he's relevant to us and that's how he understands us and we know he's with us and I, I was thinking that's really key for us to remember when we're going through stuff that uh, it means that we'll be relevant to those around us who don't have they, they haven't got the guidebook they don't realize there is a guidebook to life they don't realize that there is a friend who can walk through life with them um, and I just the other day I was reading the Psalms and I was reading I can't remember which number it is now but it's the one which at the end of every line it says his love endures forever blah 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 his love endures forever and I was praying the other day and I really felt like that is basically our battle cry it doesn't matter what comes I had a lovely week with God his love endures forever I'm having a real struggle with God at the moment his love endures forever and I just think that's our battle cry for everything Nothing else is going to outlast. Nothing else is going to beat his love. I'm not saying that we're supposed to stay in the horrible stuff, but I think he overcomes it from within. Just something to think about. It's this whole thing about rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep and living in harmony with one another. And I was thinking, whenever we come together on a Sunday morning, and whenever we gather together, we all come 
with different needs and in different places. And some will come really wanting to rejoice and others of us just want it to be a bit quiet and need time to come in. And it's about us learning to to recognise those differences in one another. Neither one is right or wrong, but being able to just to recognise there are those differences and rejoicing with those who rejoice, weeping with those who weep, and that we have that attitude whenever we come together. And really, that isn't what I was going to talk about, but I just thought it sort of, it, it sort of follows on from what Liz was saying about um, God meeting us in every single situation that we're in. But what I am going to look at this morning is John 15, verses 1 to 17. Now, we are continuing it in our study. Um, and in some ways, I'm going to have to rely a little bit on, this, on what this says because I have gone through a, a bit of a rough patch health-wise and I nearly phoned and said, look, I can't do it this week. And this has not happened. This has happened a few times, but I nearly did it this morning, this week. But I have got something together and I really do need to rely on God to help me with what I feel that he wants me to talk about. So it's, it's John 15, 1 to 17. I am the vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you may bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know his master's doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from the Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Now this chapter is, is, is part of Jesus' um, upper room discourse just before is betrayed and is taken off to be crucified. And it's a mixture, if you read the whole chapter, of encouragement to the disciples, but also of warning. 
encouragement that he will be with them always and that united to him they will grow. But also a warning that as they live out their lives and as they proclaim this message, they will face opposition. So I can't go through the whole of this chapter this morning. So when you've got some time, if you just go away and just sort of meditate upon it and share um, share with one another when you, we meet together. But what I want to concentrate on really is the first few verses of this, this chapter. And what Jesus says is in this chapter is supposed to be an encouragement to us that he is the vine and we are the branches. But for some Christians, some of the words can actually make them feel slightly uneasy and discouraged almost and frightened. Now I know that um, Ralph spoke about this a few years ago now, so what I'm saying, I will be going over a little bit of what Ralph was saying. And it's particularly, there's particularly two verses in this, in this passage that can make people feel a little bit fearful. One is, the, is verse 2, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And that, that for some people, it makes them think, well, does that mean that somewhere along the line, if I'm not bearing fruit, God's going to lock me off and that's it, that's the end. But the thing is, is that that verse, that, that word in that verse in the Greek, and I'm no Greek scholar, I can only go by what I, I sort of read, doesn't necessarily mean to cut off. It actually, and quite often is translated as it lifts up. And what Jesus is saying in here is not, I don't believe that he will, he will see us cut off if we do not bear fruit, but that he will lift us up. Now, now, if we know something about what happens in in Israel when they are are caring for the vines, it throws some light on this. Now, this is um, what uh, Dr. Earl Radmacher, who was an American seminary professor, said. He was travelling through Israel, and he described how If you travel south from Jerusalem past Bethlehem to Hebron, you see mile after mile of grapevines bending down to the ground. During the dry, non-productive season, their their vine dressers allow the branches to grow along the ground, but they don't produce fruit. This way, the branch can still grow, but they don't waste energy. There isn't enough moisture or heat for them to produce fruit, but when the time comes for the branches to start to produce fruit, the vine dresser to begin to lift them up off the ground. The process of lifting them into position so they can bear fruit takes a week or two because lifting them too fast can cause the, the branches to break. So the vine dresser is gentle and takes his time so that the branches are kept whole and secure. And I think this is more likely what Jesus is describing here. Now, this, that verse has been problematic to other people, and some people are saying, well, these are people who aren't actually Christians. They, they seem to be Christians, these people who are cut off, but they're not really Christians. But what Jesus says here is that they, they actually are united to him in some way. So then we have a problem when we say, well, if it's all by grace and not by works... Is God going to cut us off? So I think there are problems with it. Now, that's true. There are people that can come to church for years and years and years and never know God. They know all about him. They 
they, they know their Bibles even, some of them, but they never actually take that step of believing in Jesus for their salvation. They never actually take that step of belief, so it does happen. But as I say, I think this is what Jesus is talking about. The, the vine dresser comes and he lifts up those who are unproductive so that they can produce fruit. You see, the natural way a vine grows is along the ground. And if it's allowed to stay there and there's rain, it will produce roots. And it may produce a few small grapes, but they'll be sour and won't be of any use. So that they have to be lifted up so that they can produce the fruit that they need to produce. So I don't think this is talking about the severity of God. Instead, it's a picture of his loving care for his people. Given what Jesus and the Apostle tell us about our security in him, I think this makes far more sense. God is the great shepherd who cares for his flock. He is the vine dresser who cares for the vine. He nurtures and cares for his sheep as a shepherd, and he nurtures and cares for the branches as a vine dresser. Not just in general terms, but in individuals, as individually. He understands the needs of every sheep. And he understands the needs of every branch and knows exactly how to treat each one of them. And it may be that you feel at this time you're unfruitful, that you're not producing the fruit that you think you should be producing. But we don't need to fear, because when God, God will take us out of the dirt and the mire that we may have found ourselves entangled in, and he will lift us up that we might bear fruit. And he will tie us on to the trestle so that we can bear the fruit that he desires. Now after talking about lifting up the unfruitful branches, Jesus goes on to talk about the fruitful ones and how they are pruned. And here there's another problem with the way it's translated. Because the Greek word means to clean. And in fact it's translated most places as to clean. It would seem that Jesus is talking, is using a play on words because if you look in verse 3, he says to them, you are already clean. He talks about them being cleaned, the, good, the fruit, the, the, the branches that are producing fruit being cleaned, but he says, you are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. This in turn looks back to what he, talk, he says to them when he washes their feet. He says, you are clean. So it may be that this is a bit nitpicking, but I think that if we understand this word of pruning, because this is what, in fact, this is what um, um, Moral Tennis says about um, uh, the work of a vine dresser. He says, in cleaning the branches, two principles are generally observed. First, all dead wood must be ruthlessly removed, and second, the life wood must be cut back drastically. Dead wood harbors insects and disease and may cause the vine to rot to say nothing of being unproductive and unsightly. Live wood must be trimmed back in order to prevent such heavy growth that the life of the vine goes into the wood rather than into the fruit. The vineyards in the early spring look like a collection of barren, bleeding stumps, but in the fall they are filled with luxuriant grapes. So it may seem as if I'm being nitpicking because it does sound like this cleaning is pruning, but what I want us to see is it's a bit more... And that this play on words actually helps us to understand what Jesus does. 
what actually happens in this pruning process. Because what it is, is that we are cleansed, and you are cleansed by his word. The disciples are clean because of his word. And this is how he works in our lives, to prune off those things that, that stop us from growing, or those bits that are growing too fast. Paul says in Ephesians 5, verse 25, verses 25 to 27, Husbands, love your wives, as Christ also loved the church, and gave himself for her, that he may sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of by the word, that he might present her to himself as a glorious church, having not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she be holy, she should be holy and without blame. And the main way the Father, our vine dresser, cleanses us is through the word. It is through the teaching and application of the word, the dead word, and the non-essential side shoots are removed from our lives. It's his word, whether it is preached or read, that does the work of cleaning us. This is why knowing the scriptures is so important. And I'm not saying this because I know how easy it is to make everyone feel guilty. You've just got to say you've got to read the Bible more or you've got to pray more and everyone feels guilty because everyone knows they don't do enough. But the word of God has an effect in our lives. It changes, it challenges the things in our lives that are wrong. It sh- and it it shows us what is right as well. It shows us what is the work of the flesh and what is the work of the spirit in our lives so that those things can be produced. But the word of God can also show us God's will for our lives. And sometimes that means cutting off good things as well as bad things. An artist or an athlete knows that in order to perfect their craft, there are some things, good things, that they have to cut away. And it'll be different for each one of us. But as we're seeking to follow Jesus, there will be good things that sometimes we need to lay aside that we might get the better things. And the word of God has its effect on our lives as it starts to show us those things that God wants to do in our lives and how he wants us to be in his kingdom and the kingdom things he's got for us to do. (coughs) Then verse 4 to 5 says, Abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. See, it's not enough even to be cleansed by the word. It's not enough just to know the word. We also need the power of Jesus flowing through us as we're part of those branches that come out from the main vine and the power of of the sap that goes through it. We need that to be able to do the things that the scripture says. The word transforms our mind and and in some way it it starts to... um, to change us in some ways, but it's the spirit working with the word that does the change and gives us the power to live the life that God creates, has given us. I don't know if anyone's been to, um, if anyone's been to Hampton Court. I've never been there, but there's a great vine there. And the vine is now 250 years old and measures about four metres, which is 13 feet around the base. And the longest branch is 
36.5 metres, 120 feet. And the average crop is about 600 pounds. So even the furthest, you've got this, this vine, just one vine producing all this fruit, all from this one stem, this huge stem that grows. And it doesn't matter how far away they are, they all get the same nourishment. And we are connected to Jesus in this way. And we need that nourishment to grow in our Christian lives and to become what he is. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. I mean, that's quite a statement. There's nothing that we can do in our Christian lives apart from him. If we want to experience the victory that he has won for us, we need to be in him. So what does abide mean? The word translated abide means to abide, to remain, to live, to stay, to dwell. And the, actually the, world, the word is found all over the writings of John, including his letters, but unfortunately some translations don't translate the word as abide, so you don't see it, which is a shame. But if you read 1 John in particular, it's all about abiding in him. And what it means, to, what it looks like to abide in him, it's not about, it's about fellowship, not necessarily about our relationship. Our relationship with, it, with the Father doesn't change. We're always there at his son, even if we're wandering away, we're his son. When the, the prodigal son wandered away from his father, he didn't stop being his son, but the relationship was broken. And in 1 John, it talks about how we know we're living in fellowship, how we know we're abiding with Jesus and it's worth reading it through don't use the NIV because it's one of the worst for not translating it as, as abide but you'll see that it talks about what abiding does and what it looks like to abide you love the brethren in fact he says here later on in fact he says it towards the end of this verse these verses <coughs> this is my command that you love one another as I have loved you Greater love has no, no one has than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And that's one of the evidence of abiding. But how do we abide? How do, what does it mean? It, it's, it's, you know, how do we actually abide in Christ? It does sound as it's not an automatic thing, because why would he tell you to abide in me if it was automatically and straightforward? He wouldn't need to tell you to abide. If you... You know, there was no other choice. Paul says, just as you received Christ Jesus, so also continue to live in him. That's in Colossians 2, 8, 2 verse 6. And that's how we live in Christ. That's how we abide in Christ, is by faith. In the same way that we believed in him for eternal life, so we walk in him. And so we receive the power through the vine to live the life that he wants us to live. We draw on his power through that, um, that simple trust in him. And then we come to another verse, verse 6, which again can frighten us as Christians. And I think that it is supposed to be a warning. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. And that's quite scary because 
Immediately we hear that word burned, we think of being cast into hell. As Christians, we're sort of geared into thinking like that. But that doesn't nece- but the, the idea of fire and being burned doesn't necessarily mean it's talking about hell. It could be talking about judgment, and very often fire in Scripture is, taught, is, is used as a, as, as a metaphor for judgment. And there's a problem, you see, we have here. It's much like the problem we had with that second verse. If salvation is a free gift, if it's not by works but by faith, then how can someone who was once walking with Christ walk away and end up being cast into hell? It's a problem. If this is the case, wouldn't it mean that salvation isn't wholly free? Wouldn't it mean that salvation is by faith plus works? And some commenters get around it much the same way they did the other verse we looked at. And they say, well, they were never truly part of Christ. And that is a possible interpretation. But we need to ask, is this what this is talking about when it concerns Christians? But I suggest there are a couple of ways. In fact, there are three ways of interpreting this, this scripture. And one of, one of them I've already just said. I would suggest that one way of interpreting it is that a Christian who falls away knows what it's like, knows what it's like. There's no one more unhappy than a, bad, a backslidden Christian because a Christian who, who, who walks away, who, who does no longer abide with Christ, they, they can't enjoy sin anymore like they used to because they feel the, the Spirit telling them what they're doing is wrong. And in some ways, they, they experience the judgment of God in that way because no matter what they do, they, 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 can, they can sense that there's something that's um, um, wrong all the time. And the other way is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11 to 15. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which I laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on that foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will be manifest, for the day will be disclosed, because it will be revealed by fire, and fire will test what sort of work each person, each one has done. If the work the one has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved. So that's another possible interpretation of that scripture. But I think, above all, what we need to remember that this, these words are supposed to be of encouragement. They're not supposed to be to frighten us. And if we were to walk away from God, he would do everything he possibly could to stop us. You don't just wander off. He's always there bringing us back. Not, this is not about the odd slip-up. This is about willfully deciding, I do not long, no longer want to, to follow you. I personally believe that once someone truly knows Jesus, that they are saved forever. And even those who walk away will ultimately be saved, even if it is by fire. I can't imagine any other way that we can be secure than to know that that is the case, that we are secure in him. Then finally we come to this lovely scripture, and I haven't really got time to go into this, and I'm running out of energy very, very fast. Um, 
If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. What a wonderful promise. If we abide with him, if we make fellowship with him our priority in our lives, if we allow his word to abide in us and to become part in us, so that even our thoughts are his thoughts, that we might ask whatever we wish and it will be done for us. It's not even, um, it's just an amazing promise that whatever we ask, he will do for us. If there's not an encouragement that we should be filled with his word, that we should remain in close communion with him, I don't know of any other encouragement. He will answer our prayers and and he has guaranteed it. Let's pray. Father, I just pray that through through my muddled thoughts, Father, that something of what you wanted to say has got through this morning and that your people would be encouraged, Father. I pray that we would be ones who put you as priority in our lives, not out of fear, but out of love, knowing that you are the good shepherd who looks after the sheep and that you are the vine dresser that cares for the vine and that doesn't just cut off those bits that are not producing fruit but lifts them up that they might produce fruit. And We thank you, Lord, that you've made us all a part of that vine and that we're connected, Lord, that we are one with you and with each other because... We are connected to the vine. We all taste of the same spirit and we're all filled with your life and your power. And we pray, Father, that you would cause us to grow as your church in strength and in wisdom and in knowledge and understanding and in love. And that all that might see us, Lord, will see, not us, but will see Jesus. We ask this in his precious name. Amen.